Hard to believe it is mid-July already. Welcome to another edition of the Helipod. A couple of topics I want to touch on before we get going here. Starting with the Redskins name change, which is imminent. That should be coming within the next couple of weeks. Uh, a lot of front runners uh, for this new name for the Washington Redskins. Warriors has been one that people have been talking about for many, many years in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh I'm kind of a proponent of keeping it simple. I like Washington FC, as in Washington Football Club, very European, kind of soccer-ish, a lot of FCs over there across the pond. It's not the case here in the States. Obviously, no team in the NFL just goes by football club. Thought that could be kind of cool. But there are some other front runners as well, uh, besides the Warriors. Red Tails, Red Hawks, and Red Wolves. Will Compton, former Redskin and Tennessee Titan, uh, posted a picture of an awesome-looking Red Wolves uniform on Twitter. I don't know exactly where it came from, but uh, Red Wolves receiving a lot of support from some of the players. Quarterback Dwayne Haskins and defensive lineman Jonathan Allen have endorsed it. Allen said, you could call the defense the Wolf Pack. You could call the stadium the Den Dan Snyder says he wants to come up with a new name and make that public before the regular season starts. Well, the the clock is ticking on that. You know, a month ago, July 28th was going to be the reporting date for most of the teams around the NFL for training camp. The NFLPA and the league still hammering out a bunch of details, uh, including testing protocols. Are the 90-man rosters going to be reduced this year for training camp? The two sides meeting again today. Uh, It's Monday, and uh, they're going to hopefully come to uh, an agreement or a conclusion on this. The the players' union doesn't want any preseason games. Uh, The league has already reduced the preseason from four to two. And they're going to have to figure out a way to share the lost revenue of which uh, there's going to be a bunch of that for the National Football League this year. Um, It's going to be uh, interesting to see if they can come to an agreement before the end of the week. Again, the NFLPA and the league meeting on Monday will keep you updated on that, an ever-evolving issue. On the college football front, the Ivy League not going to have any fall sports. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 announced conference-only schedules The rest of the Power Five expecting a decision uh, on their schedules by the end of the month. Now, no conference uh, for Notre Dame means big problems. They've already lost three big matchups. They're going to play Wisconsin, USC, and Stanford. Those are all out. Speaking of Notre Dame, that brings me to today's guest, Brady Quinn. Uh, Sat down with Brady about three weeks ago in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, Obviously, everything's evolving with COVID-19. So some of the issues we talked about have changed slightly since then. I chose not to take that portion of the interview out because Brady made so many great points. As always, uh, you know we are presented by Viore, but we have a new sponsor. And I would like to introduce you to Greens Plus. Back in 1989, Greens Plus created the first blended green superfood powder and was the first company to infuse green superfoods into a bar. I love this stuff. I've been using Greens Plus for more than a year now. Their products are the best tasting and most effective way to improve your immunity, detox your body, boost energy, and get the nutritional insurance that your body needs. Organic and gluten-free 
Greens Plus Premium Green Superfoods are what you have been missing. You can get them at Whole Foods or on Amazon, or you can just go to greensplus.com and get 20% off on us using the promo code GP20. I like the Wild Berry Superfood Powder and the Chocolate Greens Plus Protein Bars. I'll tell you, you're going to like it. Try it out. Greens Plus, our new sponsor. Welcome on board to the Helipod. Let's get right to it now. Presented by Viore, here's Brady Quinn. Here at the Dalmar Hotel in Fort Lauderdale, the uh, rooftop bar, the Sparrow Brady Quinn, which you have frequented quite often, is uh, opening up in just a matter of days. And uh, very uh, happy to have you as our first Florida episode. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah I'm awesome. glad to be here. I wish uh, we could be doing this at the Sparrow, at least have a few drinks. Not yet. It's, it's actually, it's a fun place, good rooftop bar. You can order your drinks just basically blue, red, yellow. Like that's how they'll have you order the drinks. It's actually pretty neat. Even for the dummies like me, they just keep it, it simple. Yeah, they, 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 they keep it simple. It, it's actually brilliant, right? Because they're assuming you've already had maybe a few drinks before you get there. Yeah. And then and once you have a few too many drinks while you're there, you just pick a color. And, and at that point, it'll, it'll but be But ride good. with the same color all night because if you're right. switching up colors, as we know, that could be trouble. You're in trouble. Yeah. Exactly. I, I would imagine blue, you'll feel blue the next day if you have too, many, too much blue. So. Well played. Well yeah. played. Um, what kind of trouble have you been getting into during the, during the quarantine? How's this like with, what, three girls under... Five? Under four. Under four. Yeah. So Tegan, our middle child, she's about to turn two in a month. Uh, Sloan, our eldest, is going to turn four in the beginning of August. So we've been having a lot of fun because much like everyone else, the girls were home from school. My wife, who's superwoman, you know, really took probably more of the brunt of that because at that point in time, I was still able to do radio from home. I was still able to do a lot of the digital work I do for CBS from home. Um, and then we bought a house that we're remodeling. So I was, you know, in and out overseeing a lot of that. And she was really the one that kind of had to take on the role of mommy teacher, oh, yeah. you know, trying to figure out activities for them to do, which is pretty tough, right? You can only go out and do so many things or do so many things inside. She definitely is superwoman. So we have two in middle school Okay. and all my wife and I talked about during that first six weeks when you really were on lockdown. It right. loosened up, obviously. Now, you know, people are kind of doing their thing. Restaurants opening up, beaches are open. I just said, we are so lucky. We don't have a one to an eight-year-old, basically, <laughs> right? And that's exactly where you are because it's tough because you have to keep them occupied all yep. the time. Your oldest, you could probably throw an iPad up and they could, you know, watch some cartoons or something for a little while. But, you know, my kids are self-sufficient. They were doing online school, right. you know, on their own. There was actually very little oversight once it was announced that it was pass-fail. So I think my kids knew exactly <laughs> what they had to do, and there was no going back from there for me. Dad, that, that I think it was the biggest issue was at this age to me, you know, with one almost being four and the other one uh, about to be two, and she's not in school yet, she'll be in pre-K two uh, this year, was, you know, they need the socialization. You know, our, our middle child, Tegan, is very different from Sloan, where she is rough. She plays rough, she'll fight. Like, she, we need to teach her more of those, you know, lessons of sharing and how to interact with other kids and all that. Um, so that, that was more of the, we were hoping that she would be able to go do some more stuff during the, the summertime, but you know, it'll ramp back up in the fall. But that, that's the thing, at, at the young age, they need to be around other kids. I think they learn better that yeah. way. And I think they're able to, you know, understand how to get along and really teach each other at times. So unfortunately, uh, we tried to, you know, when it was safe to have play dates when we could and interact the best we could. But like everyone else, I'm sure it was 
uh, it was difficult like it was for us. Trials and tribulations. Um, college football is are we going to see a full slate of college football games? It's different all over the country. You know, in, in California, where I am, mm -hmm. they announced a month ago that the public university system would not be back on campus right. in, in the fall. They can't, you can't field a football team if there aren't students on campus. Meanwhile, in, in you know, the SEC and uh, uh, Big Ten, Big 12, it's, it, there's already guys working out on campus. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I think we're going to have college football. I think it's going to look different depending on, you know, where that school is at. And then I mean, will there be fans or will there not be fans, right? You know, you look at, for example, um, the, the universities you mentioned in the Pac-12, you know, they might be in more densely populated areas that might have been impacted more by COVID. Right. And so if that's the case, you want to err on the side of caution. And I think the, the biggest thing you run into is if it's not safe for students to be on campus, why is it safe for student athletes? Exactly. My argument's this. I think most people are probably cognizant of where these student athletes come from. And I, and I would even have said this, being from where I was from, and I came from a great household, but if, if I was in a pandemic, I can promise you the medical care and the attention that I would get at Notre Dame when I was you know, playing football there would have been better than I would have gotten being back at home with my parents. And honestly, I probably would have been putting my parents at risk to some degree, given their age then or even now, uh, being at home with them and knowing that it was going to be hard to keep me in the house or keep me from going, of course, you know, right. going to you're play and do doing something. Gonna do. You're going to train. Right. You're going to work out. You're going to subject yourself to potential of bringing COVID back. So, I would actually argue that there is no better place for a lot of these young men, a lot of these student athletes who, you know, might be coming from a bad environment or might come from an area that was even hit maybe worse. And now you've got athletic trainers taking um, their, their you know, temperature and, and providing the best medical care, a nutritionist who's helping them through it, a sports psychologist that maybe helped them with the anxiety portion of it. There's a lot of kids who are scared and don't know what to think of a, a pandemic, right? Or, or of a virus. So I would make the argument that they're better off being with their football team and players um, than being at home. So I think if you take that approach, and obviously you can't use that for every single student at every university, but if you take that approach, especially for a college football team, for example, uh, I do believe they'll be there. I just don't know if there'll be fans in the stands. The NFLPA said this past week that if there aren't fans in the stadium, they estimate that the revenue is going to be down $3 billion. The NFL is going to be fine. Right. But in college football, mm -hmm. if there are no fans in the stadium, we're seeing this already at medium-sized to smaller schools, the non-revenue sports are in serious danger, cutting right. lacrosse teams, soccer teams, swimming teams, wrestling teams. Football is the engine that drives all athletic departments. And yes, they have nice TV contracts, but not like the NFL. They, they require that, that revenue at the gate to survive. How do they survive if they can't have any fans in the stadium or even 20, 30% capacity. Right. Um, and, and you could even make the case as a lot of businesses will probably tell you, especially down here in Fort Lauderdale, they're able to operate right now in phase one of 50% capacity. There are some restaurants who've chosen not to open because at 50%, they can't make enough to create that profit margin right. that they need to stay in business. So slim with restaurants. Right. Yeah. And so they, they, you know, keep doing takeout. And so we moved to phase two, phase three, where they, they loosen that up. You can make the same case with maybe even some stadiums. You know, like for example, you threw out the three billion dollar, um, you know, revenue that's going to be lost. That's revenue. I don't know what the cost is, and so what the margin is, for example, for owners as far as what it costs to be able to service all those people right. in the stands, right? Like, there's, it's obviously not um, directly correlated to, 
you know, whatever that revenue they're losing, there, there's, there's a profit margin there to some degree. Now it's a lot of money. I don't know if it's, you know, a billion, 500 million, 300 million, whatever it is. It's a lot of money. It'd be great if the owners let, it, let us open up their books so we can see that, right? <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not going to let us do that. That ain't either. happening. So the, to answer that question is how, how do universities be able to survive? Well, they've got some pretty big fat endowments. Um, yeah. And I think that's where they're going to have to make some really tough decisions, work with some of their biggest donors and figure out how to allocate some of those funds to cover some of the losses that they're going to you know, incur over the course of the next year. I mean, I think we all look at it and say, once we have a vaccination, we should be able to get back to normal, right? Uh, I would caution people in that train of thought only because we have a flu vaccination. Right. People don't get a flu vaccine every year and it doesn't even cover every strain. And so who's to say that COVID-19 or whatever other acronym or name you want to call this doesn't adapt or evolve into something else, right? Where it comes around again. So even with a vaccine, I think this is going to be something we're venturing into. It's more of a new normal. We're going to have to learn how to deal with it and live with it. And we're going to have to understand how to, you know, change the way we go about, um, you know, hosting large events. Right. Well, you've already seen the, and I'm, I'm basing a lot of this on the SEC since I went to Tennessee and obviously read more about that conference. Good old Rocky Top. There you go, baby. Yeah. Um, strong recruiting class coming in. Yeah. Pruitt's been it's, dominating right been, now. He's been great. He's, they're going to turn around. I hope so. I, I like him a lot. And I think they're, they're bringing in a lot of studs, but they, when you look at what they're doing in the SEC, that just for, for regular students, there's going to be no fall break. Mm -hmm. There's going to be no Thanksgiving break. Right. So they're going to wrap things up early before a potential second spike happens in the fall, which I think is really smart. Now, right. I don't know what, what does that mean for football teams that are going to bowl games? Do, are all those guys still on campus? Do they go home? What do you do? They got to figure all that out. They do, and I'm a part of the Orange Bowl committee down here in South Florida, and I, I did have a conversation actually this past week doing uh, some community service for the, for the group, and the insight that I received, because um, obviously you have to be you know, talking with the, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, because there's a lot of planning that goes into a Super Bowl in Tampa, a national championship in Miami, an Orange Bowl as well, uh, which, which is separate, obviously, from um, the, the college football playoff as well as the, the national championship. So they'll host that event as well. They've got to be selling advertising. They've got to be you know, able to sell tickets ahead of time and all that. So the word I'm getting is that they are fully planning on having these events with full stadiums. That is <clears throat> the inclination, inclination that I've gotten from the conversations we've had wow. so far. So what does that mean? Is there anticipation of a vaccine being out in time, which would make them feel safer? I don't know. It could be that. Uh, it could be the fact that the Hard Rock Stadium there in Miami, Miami is going for one of the, the best certifications that you can get in regards to having the cleanest um, facility possible to host a sporting event at. I, I know uh, Stephen Ross and um, Tom Garfinkel and everyone else has worked really hard on I forget the exact name of the, um, the accreditation they're getting, but it's like the uh, GMARC or something like that. Um, but but it's going to be a different standard compared to other in terms stadiums. of cleanliness. In terms of cleanliness and sanitization and, and right. their practices and protocols, so uh, maybe that's they, they feel confident about their ability to execute that. Um, and I guess we'll find out throughout the course of the season with the Dolphins. But as of right now, that's that's what the word I'm getting. And so if if you know if all those events are being hosted down here and that's what their preparation is, I'm sure. And, and by the way, I'm sure that's 
partially because it's easier to plan for an event with a full stadium. Of course. And then well, cut and you, it back. And you kind of have to do right. that, right? You can't, right. yeah, you can't plan on 20% and then all the, of a sudden you're like, oh shit, we got 70% capacity. The only difficulty comes though is when you're planning for that and you're trying to sell advertising for that and there's no buyers, right? If you read the Wall Street Journal today, one of the biggest advertising companies says, look, TV ads are going to be down 13% this year. That's a lot of money right? The upfronts aren't happening this year. You know, how are TV networks going to be reassuring these advertising agencies, whether it's the NFL or college football or anyone, anyone else, that they're going to be able to, you know, sell ads for people. Now you can make the case that there should be more people at home watching their ads. Sure. So it makes sense. Um, but even for a lot of the suites, the, you know, the local advertising and so forth, that's where it becomes an issue. Yeah. I, there's going to be a lot of makeup ads, you know, if that, if that comes into play, people ask me all the time, you know, how, how many fans are going to be in the stadium? Do you think they're going to be fans in the stadium? Um, College football, much bigger question mark for me. The NFL, I look at and I say, they're playing the full regular season. Right. They may condense the preseason as they've already talked about, which right. I don't think is a terrible idea. Um, I, I mean, selfishly, I'd love to see them play four preseason games because I do all the Titans games, but I understand if you're only going to play two. But in terms of the fans being in the stadium in September when the NFL regular season kicks off, I'm of the opinion that all the suites will be full. Right. The, they're going to put that, that is the safest way to go. And then there'll be a 20, 30% capacity initially. And then I think by the end of the regular season, to your point about all these bowls, planning on having everybody there, I, I think you will see stadiums that are almost near full capacity. I'm with you. I, I do think we'll get to that point. And plus we have to understand we could find out a lot more in the next month or so. Maybe not. Maybe at this point, every time I, I look at what the WHO is saying or the CDC, it's like, now, now it seems like we're even, we know even less about it than we did before. Well, First yeah. it was respiratory, now it's circulatory. Like, what, what kind of virus are we talking about you, here? You're off social media, so you did not see this video. But it, <laughs> it was a really funny video this lady put up where she was talking about no masks, masks. You know, and, and it was just back and forth, back and forth. And it was, do you remember when this initially started? Masks aren't going to help you. It yeah. was the Surgeon General that was right. saying this. And then within a week, we were all wearing masks. Who knows? Well, and then, and then you hear six feet, and you know, we're doing our, our radio show on Sirius, and we have one of the medical experts tell us that actually it's three, but we say six because you know, we don't want you know, people to get too close and come into that. Is that right? That's what I was told. And this was on, on live radio. So I, I don't think he would go out and right. make that claim. I, his name escapes me at the moment. but That's funny. Well, I don't, I don't know how many people are doing the full six feet thing. That's another thing. Uh, talking with my, uh, with my producer, Fernanda, who's helping us out today on the way down here, is they're talking about training camp, which, as you know, is going to have close to, uh, you know, he's going to have well over the, the 53-man roster. 90 players, 90, 90 players are going to be there. And they want to put the lockers six feet apart. You, that, by the way, that is impossible to do in almost every NFL facility or stadium. So they're going to be lockers potentially that are six feet apart. And then you're going to go out there and you're going to be like tackling dudes and, you know, sumo wrestling. And you're going to be on the line. What's the, I don't understand. What's the point? I, I don't know either. I think it's to reassure the players, reassure the people who are in positions of power that if we're going to come back and try to do this, we're going to try to do it at least as safely as we possibly can. Obviously, you know, John Harbaugh's very, been very outspoken about it being impossible with the way you have to communicate and the things that they're asking, you know, them to do. Right. Uh, and it's why, you know, when you talk about the 90-man number, there's speculation that maybe they cut it down to 75. Because to your point, these facilities aren't built for 90 people. They're built for a 53-plus, you know, the practice squad, probably, right. you, know, you know, locker rooms. And so when you go in there for training camp, 
you know, most locker rooms are stressed in the NFL. College locker rooms are obviously built for that because they're built for, what, 85 scholarship players. So they're accustomed to that. Uh, That's not the case in the NFL. So that's where it becomes hard to figure out where you're putting everyone. And then does it even make sense to in a year where you've got no OTAs, no minicamp, are those 15 guys really making the roster? Probably not. And so I would say that like, that's my concern is for those 15 guys who this may very, very well be their last football, whether there are guys still trying to hang on or a guy who just got signed as a college free agent, they might be done because they're not, they're not going to bring them to camp. They don't want to waste those, those reps because they're still trying to catch up with the guys that oh, they feel like yeah. could make the roster. And so now you've got 15 less bodies, but it's 15 less guys you're trying to figure out a spot for. It's 15 less guys you're getting reps to. They don't really need it. And especially if you have two preseason games. So that's where I, I feel like it's, it, you know, this year in particular, it's going to be tough for a lot of those back-end roster guys because they're, they're going to be left out not having the film, practice, and things to showcase themselves. And, and that stinks. You know, for, for, you know, for me being a guy that didn't have to worry about that on the way in, but, you know, at the end of my career was just trying to hang on. You need every rep you can. You know, and right. it's not about always proving it to your team. Sometimes it's about proving it to every other team as well. Well, the preseason is going to be, uh, I think, vastly different this year. They're not going to have the joint practices. Every team is going to have to be at their normal facility. They're not going to be able to be on the road. One of the coolest things about training camp, I think, was when teams go away. You know, the Texans were at the Greenbrier. What an amazing setup. Oh, yeah, if you're at the Greenbrier. Right, right, right. Look at, the only time we went away was when I was in Kansas City and went to St. Joe's. It was hot, humid. It was, yeah, it was not fun. All right, if you want me to go to Napa, I'll gladly right. go to Napa. I'll gladly okay, go Raiders. to Greenbrier. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, like, go ahead and send me some bougie place, you know, out Oxnard, it's, it's usually probably not as bad as being in Dallas, right where the Cowboys go. So send, send me somewhere else like that. I'd, I'd be happy about it. Uh, look, I loved my time there in St. Joe, but it, was, it made it difficult, even on off days, to commute back and forth, and you're sleeping on a dorm bed. It's just, yeah. yeah. I, I always liked having training camp at the facility. I always thought you have the facilities to get the best treatment you can, and it's just, it makes the transition to and from training camp that much easier. I'm looking at it from a media perspective where it was a boondoggle and you get away for a couple oh, of weeks, yeah. right? It's a little different than you were Probably. actually going through, I, going I remember, through practice. I, I'll never forget Jamal Charles, though. He brought his – he had a cycling bike. It was a ridiculously nice, expensive cycling bike. He always rode the bike a lot. I think he brought one of those um, – what are they called? The hyperbaric chambers. Mm-hmm. He brought one of those like portable ones he had set up in his room. Oh, they almost like blow up. Exactly. Yeah. They blow up. They like pressurize with air and then they've got the oxygen that runs in. I remember like walking by and he, like, he was putting that in his room. He had all this stuff. And I'm thinking, how long is it going to He's like literally moving in and out of an apartment basically. Like it was like, it would have taken like a moving team to get him in and out with all the stuff that he brought. And it was for like three weeks. Um, wow. But, you know, it, it ended up working out. He obviously, uh, he obviously got through training camp just fine. Yeah, no, he was fine. I want to get in. I, I want to get into your career because one of the things I like to focus on is the rookie year of yeah. guys. But another thing that I think is really interesting with you is the recruiting process. And I am. I will just admit I am stealing this bit right from Ryan Rusillo because it's so good. He's talked to a couple of guys about you know recruiting stories, um, and you coming out of Dublin, Ohio, uh, one of the top quarterbacks in the country. Uh, Dublin Kaufman yes, was your right. high school, That's right? right. Yeah. Played in the U.S. Army All-American Bowl. Um, what was that process like for you, and, and what did it come down to, down to before you ended up at Notre Dame? My, gosh, what would have been? 2001 was a, uh, how, how do I put this? It was a turning point in my life. That's the only way I can describe it because my sophomore year, I was a part of the varsity baseball team. We won States. Mm-hmm. 
And at that point in time, I played up as a younger player on the varsity team. So I thought baseball was probably going to be the ticket. Then you fast forward to that fall, we end up going to the state semis in football. And so up to that point, I'd split time the year before, but had a foot injury, ended up missing the second half of the season. So I was more thinking, all right, baseball is kind of more where this is going. That fall, we end up going to the state semis. That's the farthest our, our school had ever gone in Division One in Ohio. Uh, have a great year. And uh, we had a new coach come in. So there's a lot of, a lot of questions, a lot of things like, all right, like how's, how's this going to work out, new coach, new system. And so from that point moving forward, I was like, all right, maybe it's football, baseball, maybe it's just football, we don't know. But that was where, fast forwarding to that next spring, I started to get a ton of attention. Um, still was playing baseball. This is spring of your junior year? Junior year. So this is like in 2002. Okay. And offers start coming in, you know, Iowa and some Mac schools. Like I think my Ohio was one of the first ones, but Iowa was one of my first offers. And then they started to build up, um, you know, BC and some of these other schools. And <clears throat> so in the summertime back then, it was entirely different than what it is now. You know, now you go to an Under Armour camp, you go to a Rivals or a Nike camp, and everyone's evaluating you. Back then, Nike was just getting, getting started up. Under Armour didn't even have these camps. Uh, I, can't, I couldn't tell you if Rivals did back then or not. So what you do is you'd go school to school. Everyone wanted to see you in person. The throughout. school camps. Exactly. Okay. You'd go to the school camps, even just for a day. And so uh, th- it's so funny how this whole thing comes full circle. Ted Ginn Sr. was a coach up in Cleveland Glenville at the time. And he would take a bus full of players and he'd take them all around the Midwest, the South, basically around the country where he could and try to get some of these young men exposure in, in their camps. And so my mom and I, along with another running back, went up going to Minnesota, Justin Valentine and his mom, we basically all followed. We had like this whole little carpool all through down through the South where, you know, we were going um, to whether it was like Louisville or Kentucky or South Carolina. Um, I'd been to Florida. I'd been to Tennessee. Like we were all kind of going to these same spots, same locations. So like Dante Whitner and I were the same class. So we kind of became a little bit, you know, close or friendly through that experience. Um, and after I'll never forget after going to the Michigan camp and once they offered back then it was like, you got emails and then you could get like the paper offers, probably 20 offers flew in. Once Michigan offered like the rest, everything else happened. Hmm. And it was like 40 some offers. There's only a few schools that at that point hadn't, you know, recruited me or haven't, I hadn't offered me that I was looking at. Um, and so I, I wanted to make my decision before my senior year and just have it wrapped up. Cause I felt like at this point I had enough options that I could select the school that fit me. So Notre Dame, which was a school that I rooted for growing up. And I had talked to previously when Bob Davey was there, but then they went through this lull where there was the George O'Leary and then he had lied on his right. resume and he gets fired. And then they hire uh, Ty Willingham. Well, I hadn't heard much uh, from Ty Willingham's staff. And I was, you know, I was kind of, I, 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 I was kind of going through it with my parents, you know, my, my dad at the time, uh, loved, loved Michigan. My mom at the time was like, all right, maybe stay home, go to Ohio state. Maybe not. You know, she was kind of torn to Tennessee was in the mix. Phil Fulmer was there at the time. Uh, loved, you know, loved everything about, you know, their, where their program was. Peyton had just left there. You know, T Martin just won a national championship. That was champion. the peak. Yeah. That, that was the peak. That was well, we and good. that was where I was looking. I was like, man, this is like, they're set up to win and win right now. So there's a number of schools in the mix. Well, I had a wide receiver who I was best friends with. He moved to my hometown in seventh grade, uh, Chinadu and Duke, where they moved up from Tennessee, actually. And his, him and his dad came to us because we had been to some of these camps together, and I would have loved to continue playing with him. But at this point, it looked like I was probably going to go to Michigan. 
and he had uh, he was he had just committed to Notre Dame, and so he said, "Look, you've gotta you've gotta go and and visit Notre Dame and meet Ty Willingham." And I was like, "You know, we've already got you know this this whole schedule. I'm going out to Colorado for this, and you know, visiting um, uh, Coach Barnett and their staff. Like, my dad had had, had some roots, and we had some family there, so that maybe made some sense." So. Long story short, we're like, we'll try to go for an academic visit because that's all I, it's all we can fit in the summertime. I mean, it's expensive and it's not like my family is going to be able to afford all these different trips and hotels and travel. So we go up to Notre Dame and um, I'm I'm absolutely just kind of swept away with the man that Ty Willingham is, was and is, and just how he presented me the opportunity to play at Notre Dame. He didn't promise me anything. He just said, you'll have the opportunity to compete. He goes, that's the only thing I'll ever promise you. And he's like, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to coach you to be the best football player you can be, but more important than that, the best man you can be. And that really spoke to my heart. And at that point, you know, I was walking on Notre Dame's campus, and it was the only place that I really felt like I could see myself developing as a football player, as a man, spiritually. And it was just the, the truth that he spoke with. And where everyone else was kind of trying to pitch you on, oh, you're the chance to play early. Oh, you know, we'll give you a chance to do this or that. And I wasn't really into that. He just was, was honest. And that kind of tied the deal for me and committed to, uh, to go to Notre Dame. So in your last two years in Notre Dame, 69 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, you set 36 passing records before you left the school. 2007 draft. Yep. Jamarcus Russell, the number <laughs> one pick. Um, you've told this story 100 times. You're waiting to be drafted. You thought you were going to be picked higher. The Browns told you, that if Joe Thomas and you are both there at three, they're going to take Joe. Right. And when that happened, did you have any inkling where you thought you might go before the Browns got back in and then picked you at 22? Yeah, so the, the first weird thing about the Browns was I had a great visit with Rip Shear, Rob Chudzinski, their quarterback coach, OC. And then when I, when I sat down and watched some film with Phil Savage, their general manager at the time, it was weird because we watched some of my tape, we were watching some film. He's like, hey, I want to show you something. And he showed me some old film of Jamarcus Russell, you know, because he had been a part of the, I believe it was the, maybe it was the Manning Passing Academy, and he had some old film of Jamarcus on it. And I remember watching it with him and thinking to myself, man, I don't know if these guys like me. I don't know if they're going to pick me because he's, and you know, granted, they might not be in striking distance of Jamarcus, but right. like, why is he showing me this film? And so I, I leave the visit kind of curious because I'm thinking, all right, I think things went well with the OC with, with uh, Romeo Cornell at the time, the head coach, and Rip Shear, their quarterback coach. But I was like, I, I wasn't sure how to take that. So then Phil tells my agent, Tom Cotton, the night before the draft, he goes, if, if both you and Joe are there, <clears throat> we're going to take Joe. And my first inclination was, huh, okay. Like, I'm, I'm kind of curious. And, and Tom said, look, I've never had a general manager ever tell me the night before the draft what he was going to do. He goes, so I don't know if this is a smokescreen. Right. And they want us to get this out there to the media or start poking around to create a rumor so they can move around or do something. Or if he's just being honest. And so at that point, I get a call from Charlie Weiss. He goes, hey, I just got a package from the Miami Dolphins. I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, it sounds like if you're there at nine, they're going to take you based on what I just received. I said, okay, awesome. Uh, excited about that. And so when draft day came and when Cleveland passed me at three, I, I kind of thought to myself, all right, you know, Phil was a man of his word. Like he was being honest. He right. knew how much I, at the time, you know, wanted to be a, a Cleveland Brown. Uh, given my upbringing, given where I was from. And I think he was preparing for me not to be let down. And so from that moment, I was just like kind of taken back by just the fact that he was willing to 
I don't want to say put his like career on the line, but he was willing to do something that like no other general manager that I know of has ever done. Risking getting that news out there in right. public, and it was real. Right, and yeah. it was real, and he was being, and, and and so I was shocked, and and I so I immediately when they took Joe, I was shocked for that reason. Like Phil was was the type of man to go do that and be honest, because he knew how much it meant to me. Right. So then at that point, you know, I'd visited with uh, John Gruden. It was at the Bucks. They're at four. I'd visited with them. Thought there might be an outside chance, but I thought they might go defensive, uh, which they did with Gaines Adams. Um, Washington, who I'd visited with as well, I think they were at six. I had went and visited them. I I didn't think that was a likelihood. They had Jason Campbell. They had Mark Brunel, but didn't didn't necessarily know what they were thinking. Minnesota was at seven. Uh, Minnesota had spent some time with Brad Schiller's at the time, and those guys uh, really enjoyed the time with them. But, again, you know, if Adrian Peterson's there, you you take Adrian Peterson, right? He's arguably the best player in that draft. Uh, and that's saying a lot considering Joe's in that draft, Calvin Johnson in that draft. Oh, I mean, it was hell of a, ridic- draft. hell of a draft. Marshawn Lynch, you can go on down the line. Um, and so then at nine, I was like, all right, if I get to nine, I mean, that's the last team I met with, the last team uh, had, had come to see me and visit with me. So at that point, it's got to be the Dolphins, right? So then you circle all the way back to high school where there's this kid who's in this van with Ted Ginn Sr., his son, right, Ted Ginn Jr. And I remember talking with Dante just about how special Ted was. And this is like back in the high school days, really before, um, you know, he had gotten going quite as much, but he was, he, I mean, he was elite track, could have ran, been in the Olympics and his recruiting prowess was building. So then when they took Ted, I was thinking to myself, wow, like that, it caught me off guard only because I worked with Terry Shea right. during that the process of preparing for the combine. Um, and then he had left to go join Camp Cameron's staff. So I was like, man, this guy has seen me put in the work. We've met X's and O's. He knows everything I bring to the table. So he should know and have a good feel for me. Um, and then when, we, then, then when I saw they took Ted, I was like, wow. You know, I, I didn't think they would go that direction. Right. So at that point, then I'm, I'm thinking to myself, all right, I've got to go pee because I've been sitting in here for so long and I haven't had a chance to go to the bathroom. With, with the, all I, 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 focused on, yeah. yeah. I, got, I got to go to the stall at some point because the picks back then were 15 or 20 minutes. Right. So I ended, up, uh, I ended up going to the bathroom, bumping to Roger Goodell. And at that point, he had kind of said, hey, man, you know, if, this, if you want to come you know, take a break or sit in my, my suite, this is the first draft he ever did. He's like, you know, feel free. I don't know that he'd offer that same thing up now, <laughs> but it's his first draft. So he's like, all right. And, and we, had, we had met that week as well, and, and we had had a separate conversation. He was a Notre Dame fan and all that. So, right. um, you know, we, we had good, built a, a decent rapport up to that point. So it was nice of him to offer. I didn't accept at the time. But later would, as I think my family got more tired of being on camera and, and signing up for this, which that's the only thing I think I regret is I knew what I signed up for. I had no problem being there, sitting and waiting because it's, again, like what, is that really that big of a problem? Like you're, you're talking waiting, about first world, world first problems, world right? problems yeah. first round yeah. problems, right? <laughs> first, first round problems, you're waiting to be drafted the first round. I'm like, come on, dude. Like this, it's my dream. Like I'm, I'm it's the craziest reality show you, you ever get yeah. to, you know, witness. So I, I more felt bad for them. I think they got tired of being on camera. And um, that was the only thing where I was like, all right, let's get them into Roger Goodell's suite. We got some Chipotle. We were all good. So, Well, it's, it was such an interesting night to watch because I think you and Aaron Rodgers are the two that stick out in our minds in terms of guys that we thought could go in the top five that, right. you know, that slid all the way down to the, to the bottom half of the first round. Uh, so that's draft night. We're going to take a short break, read our uh, quick promo for Viore. That's our presenting sponsor. VioriClothing.com slash Helipod is where you can get 20% off 
Brady, I don't know if you've tried these clothes out yet, but uh, you will be soon because you're going to have a, a gift pack coming. It's awesome. 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 It's, it's great. It's it's athleisure wear with an edge. I love that. Yeah. So I think you're going to like the wear. They're, they're core short. That's my favorite. They have a little liner inside, so you just you just slip them on. You can nice. sleep in them. You can work out in them. Uh, you can go grocery shopping in them. You can just hang by the corner. Those are perfect, especially for down here in South Florida where it's yeah. humid. Like, you, you don't need any extra layers. No, like the, no. That, dude, that you, sort of apparel is perfect down here. It is the best. So that's the core short. They also have the bank short that's pretty cool. They have bathing suits. They have great workout t-shirts, hoodies. Diori Clothing, that's V-U-O-R-I, clothing.com slash helipod. 20% off your first order today. Brady? Yours is on the way. All right, so we just go through the draft night process, and you end up going to Cleveland after all, which is one of the places that you, that you wanted to be. Granted, you know, picked a little bit higher. Romeo Cronell is the head coach. Charlie Fry, Derek Anderson. I think Ken Dorsey was on yep, the Ken roster Dorsey. for a little while at quarterback. And you hold out, and you miss what fifteen days of camp? Yeah, something something in that park. I mean, technically. If we want to get you know technical about this, it's it's not a holdout because I wasn't under contract. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. It's cons- yeah. you haven't agreed upon terms. Okay. So that's what that's okay. what we would have called it back then. A holdout is when obviously you're under contract and, and you're you not choose coming. not to work. That so. is you are you are correct. But that that I've, you, we see that a lot with rookie right. quarterbacks, and it puts you behind the eight ball a little bit. I you know being from yeah. DC, huge Redskins fan, I, he sure did that. Never recovered. He, here was the issue because people always ask me that like, would you have done anything different looking back on it, and. A couple things. One, I think what Cleveland wanted me to do is what really ended up happening my rookie year. They were hoping that I would probably sit and learn my first year. That was more of what I think people were accustomed to when you drafted a quarterback in the first round. Right. Carson Palmer and some others, you know, you could list. Aaron Rodgers obviously sat for a number of years. Um, that was how teams viewed it then. And in part because they were making a bigger financial commitment off the bat. So I think they wanted to try to do it right. Now it's different. It's still, and it's become a big financial commitment, but you know, really they want to get you to play as soon as possible to then see if they want to invest in you, in, into you for the long term uh, moving forward with that next huge contract. When you have Sam Bradford making, what, $50 million guaranteed and he hasn't played a single snap, you've already invested. So you want to try to do it right. Now, he's right. a little different case. He, you know, played pretty quickly early on. But, you know, again, you want to be cautious with how you go about doing that. Um, for me, it was two, twofold. One, getting the inclination that they wanted, were going to have me sit anyway my, my rookie year. Um, that was part of it. But I think it was just the general consensus that, you know, Tom Condon is one of the best, most respected. My dad wasn't an agent, wasn't an attorney. You know, he didn't have any experience in complex negotiations, nor did my mom. Uh, I come from a blue collar family. So when you hire a guy that you're paying 3%, you really do rely on his expertise. And Tom would tell you, like I was chomping at the bit to go out there and to go, um, you know, compete and practice and play. And, and I'd been at OTAs and minicamp, so I, I had all the material that we were installing back in training camp. It wasn't like I was missing anything. And I, and I, and I would have told the Browns this at the time, but there was no chance I was going to miss a preseason game. There was no chance. And so obviously I came in, I think, the week before the preseason game, which my, my punishment from Coach Cornell was he wasn't going to let me play in that first one. Uh, even oh, was that I, right? Yeah, even, even though I made it back in time, he wasn't going to let that happen. So um, there, there was a little bit of relying on the expertise of your agent to say, okay, this is where we feel like your contract should be, or we feel like we've negotiated to a point where unless you really want to let this thing draw out, this is as good as we're going to be able to do. So uh, I think that played a role. And I, and I honestly think when you t- take two first round picks 
especially the way things were negotiated back then, where there's so much more you could negotiate, they prioritized Joe over me, which made sense. Again, if, if the philosophy was to have me potentially go and sit the first year anyway, and you need that blindside left tackle who's going to play every snap from the day he was drafted onward, you're going to prioritize that deal over, over probably mine. So um, I think all those things kind of equated to us not being able to you know, come to an agreement sooner. Um, and I think looking back on it, like, do I wish it would have worked out differently? Could I have gotten in sooner? Sure. And, you know, maybe I could have been a part of that, that rookie year starting and playing more than just a, a series week 17. Um, but you can always look at back and say, what if I, I think the biggest thing was, and my agent had, had echoed this to me is you don't want to look back and go, man, I'm in a crappy deal. So now you do come in, you do play early and now you are actually holding out because you're upset with the deal that you signed in the first place. Right. So you actually played pretty well in the preseason in the three games you, you played. Yeah. You threw for 300 yards, you had three touchdown passes and, and one pick. Uh, and Romeo did Tip pick. Tip, tip pick tip versus pick? Chicago. That's still... <laughs> That's amazing that yeah. you remember that. Right uh, you always, hey, trust me, I, you always remember the... I, I, can, I can vividly go back tell you some of the ones from college because I, I hear 14, I'm like, gosh, I think five of those were tipped that year. I mean, there's only like two that year that legitimately my senior year, I think, were just... Poor decision, bad throw, or someone make a good play. So that's so amazing. Oh, and yeah. by the way, that's not unique to you. That that is yeah. uh, every it's, quarterback, it's every, every like player that. can yeah. rem- can remember that. It's like it's sure. like the one that broke your heart. You yeah. always remember that. That's <laughs> that's what interceptions are. You know, it's like if if you if you dated around a lot, you know, you might have got your heart broken a few yeah. times. It's like if you threw the football enough, you're gonna throw some interceptions, yeah. and those break your heart. Jameis Winston dated a lot of people last uh, football season. That is one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> so Romeo doesn't name a starter right away. So after that final preseason game, you're like, oh, okay, here we go. I might, I might get a shot here. Right. I, I, at that point, I knew I wasn't going to get a shot. Okay. Um, and, and I was, again, I was naive to this. I didn't have a family member who had played and was, was in the NFL, so I wasn't sure how things were going to work out. What was crazy to me was the next two weeks. So we start versus your division rival against Pittsburgh. And after, you know, really knowing that Charlie was going to be the guy going, in, going Charlie into the season, Fry. Charlie Fry. Yeah knowing he was going to be the guy, at least from what I witnessed when I got to camp and just everything. He gets benched at halftime. DA goes in. He doesn't really do much better in the second half. And after that game, Charlie gets traded to Seattle. Like, we had, we had spent so much time. One half, of one, one, half of one game. And, and he's traded. And I'm like, holy cow. Like, that is the business of the NFL. I was flabbergasted just thinking like, and selfishly thinking, well, I wish I would have gotten those reps back in minicamp and, right. and OTAs and, and then even looking back at training camp. Like, all right, like it would have been – maybe it worked out a little different. And then my next thought was – because we had released Ken Dorsey because we only kept three on the active roster. Mm-hmm. I was like, I hope we get Ken Dorsey back. Ken Dorsey was – and now he's, he's coaching. He was one of the greatest assets that I had throughout the course of my career. You know, I, I wish I would have been able to play in a room with Ken – throughout the extent because he provided such a, a wealth of knowledge. He knew Chud back from their days in Miami together. So he understood what he wanted. He understood, he even was sitting there teaching me like, hey, when you draw your routes, if he, if he asked you to go up on the board and draw this, he goes, what type of relationship the wide receiver had on this particular play, inside release? He's like, draw it. So he would even take me through like how, ex- how Chud wanted those things drawn up on the board so it was perfect. And so if I needed to go up in front of the team or the offense to teach it, it was going to be exactly how he was going to draw it. And, and Ken was the one to invest in me and to spend that time and, and really taught me a lot of that. I, I never had anyone like that after 
um, after that, those first two years. Because Ken came back again with us the next year. It was me, Ken, and obviously DA. And then when DA and I went on IR that second year and Ken started the last five or six games, that was it. You know, and, and when Eric came in, Eric Mangini and George Kikinas, they, they blew up the roster. They blew up everything. And, and it was tough because going into that second year, that was the best I ever felt about an offense. Having a full offseason, a full year mm-hmm. to digest. Chud, Rip Shear, those guys were such good coaches. But then also Ken there to reinforce a lot of what they were teaching. And, uh, and I think that was the toughest part was – like feeling like every year after that, I was just always starting over. Do you feel like there are, there are teams, because I, I see this, and I hear constantly how important it is to have a guy like Ken Dorsey in the quarterback. Yeah. But there, there are teams that invest in young quarterbacks and top 10 picks, and you look at the backup and you wonder, is that the best guy to have there? I mean, I don't know if they're looking at it from a competitive standpoint, but to me, the mental aspect is as important as the physical at the quarterback position. It, it's a delicate thing. You know, I can take you to 2010 when I got traded to Denver. Kyle Orton's already there. Yeah, and remember, that 2009 Denver team started off 6-0. and That was Josh McDaniel's first year there. They're as hot of a team as, as you would come by. We played them there in Denver in week two, got our butts kicked. I mean, that defense, their offense, I mean, they were rolling at that time. Now, they, they fizzled out. They went 2-8 and eight the, the next 10 games. But, you know, that 8-8 eight and eight first year, that's not bad. And, sure. I, and I think, you know, they felt like they had some momentum. I get traded there. They draft Tim Tebow in the first round. That quarterback room was interesting because you had so many different personalities. You know, there were, uh, you know, different political beliefs and religious beliefs and just who the people are as people, how they operated, how they ticked. Um, and, and you got the sense after 2010 that it, you know, you had to do something different in 2011. So Adam Gase became our quarterback's coach. And we brought in a guy named Adam Weber. So the exact opposite of having an older veteran, they brought in on, and then on practice squad, Adam Weber, who had played a lot of football in Minnesota, was very successful during his time there. But he was one of the funniest people I've ever met. For, for the, I mean, literally could walk into any room and lighten the mood no matter what. And, and he changed the dynamic of the room. Like as best as I could kind of relating with Tim in some ways or Kyle in other ways, uh, even as a backup being a part of it, like I couldn't create the environment that I think Adam Gase was looking for, Mike McCoy was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, then obviously at that time, uh, John Fox came as our, as, as our head coach. So they wanted to ensure that, you know, that ended up being the right, um, the right type of environment because he had just come from the Panthers where he had Jake DeLome to Jimmy Clausen and he didn't like the environment that they had had or however that quarterback room had gone. And so he was really keen on that. So it was... Um, it was interesting because the way Webb kind of fit in and just the way he would lighten the room and he would just have a comment here, a comment there, but always- Was he just a ball things. buster? Was he just fearless it was, about no, the ball it was, buster? No, it wasn't even like being a ball buster. It was just more like, you know, Mike McCoy, he would drop in and, and he'd be talking to everyone about something or he'd draw something on the board where you're going through something quick on film and he'd turn around and say, hey, Webb, what's your favorite play? You know, and, and he's, a, he's a rookie at this point right. in time and he's, he's not expecting to get any questions. He's going, uh, uh. Uh, I'll get back to you on that one, coach. And, and that was the running joke the rest of the year. He never, ever came up with a player response. <laughs> never, never. And mind you, that preseason that year, he got one series. One series, the last preseason game. We're in Arizona. And he's got the ball. And I think there was like 30 seconds left. So this is like his only chance, his only opportunity. They bring an all-out blitz on the very first play. We're like on our 10-yard line. Oh, good Lord. He hits, I think it was Eron Riley. It was a wide receiver at a Duke on like a stop route, a nine-yard stop route. 
he darn near takes it to like the opposite plus territory to like the 15 or 20. So we've got like one more play left after this, right? Webb scrambles out. It looks like he's going to throw to the end zone, take a shot, but instead he tucks it. You know, he kind of goes for like that, you know, there goes my hero. <laughs> We're watching hero in slow move. motion. And he's slowly trying to get there and he kind of jumps probably at the five yard line and just gets crushed, crushed way short. But that was his moment. You know, that was the opportunity and, and, and he maximized it. And, and so he, they kept him on and, and he was an absolute pleasure to be with. He's gotten into coaching since. Um, but like to go back to the original conversation, like the quarterback room and how you go about handling the personalities, whether it's an old guy who's a mentor or a young guy who can just change up how people feel about each other, like that stuff is incredibly important. Everyone overlooks it. What? So Orton, you, Tebow. Yeah. Doesn't seem that different to me. Why was that such an interesting quarterback room? Uh, again, just because of our backgrounds, I think. Um, you know, one, when you have a lefty and, you know, most righties joke about it, it's like, all right, shit, we've got to flip everything. <laughs> you know, we've got to flip everything for this guy. Right. You know? and, and he's the hot rookie coming in, Right, too. no, I mean, and he had a following like nothing you'd ever see. No, it was incredible. Um, and, and, and so I, I think from that standpoint, there was an expectation. He had expectations, but the gap between what Kyle knew or what I knew having played in the league and what he knew and what he had run in college, vastly different. Well, especially considering what he ran in college was the furthest thing from a pro style offense. Right. And so that was where like that, that second year, we really had to make a transition. And the first year he was there with Josh, it was really more of, I don't want to say gimmick because I hate that term, but just a change up to what we were trying to do. You know, right. quarterback run game, short yardage, goal line. Um, you know, maybe you mix it in to make teams prepare for it if it can be effective. And then the next year when, when Tim got in, like we had to change the entire offense completely. I mean, the reads, everything simplified running game, like it, it all got changed. So, um, it, you know, it, it was different from that standpoint because you just had two different types of athletes and two different guys as far as how they operated. And right. I was kind of somewhere in the middle where I could do a little bit of what Tim did and I could throw, you know, similar to Kyle, but like kind of was somewhere in the middle of all that. When that that playoff run that year with Tebow, did you? It was interesting to see because watching from afar for the average football fan, they're like, oh, here's Tebow doing what he did at Florida. It's the exact same thing. But an astute football fan knew that long term, that type of game was not going to be able to, no. to win a lot of football games. Well, no, I think I think what we needed was we needed a lot of things to go right. You know, you had to have your defense play like a number one defense in the NFL. Our defense played that way that year. You had to run the football like you were one of the best rushing teams, maybe the best when it, once he took over. And he was a part of that. But Willis McGahee, like flew under the radar. Incredible. Phenomenal that year. And, and you had to have, you know, Marion Barber, Barber fumble or step out of bounds when he should have versus Chicago. Or you had to have Eric Smith, you know, not be able to bring down Tim on a blitz zero versus New York and let him get around. And then there's no one assigned for him to run in the end zone. Um, you know, you had to get some onside kicks. You had to have Christian Ponder throw backed up with like 20 seconds left in an interception in Minnesota to then literally set us up in field goal range for the win. Like all those things kind of had to happen. They broke the right way. In, in order for it yeah. to work out that way. Um, and, and that's, again, that's not like taking away from what he did or what we did as a team. It's just, it's the reality. Like every season you look back and if you're an eight and eight team, you go, there's probably three games we, that could have went our way and we could have been an 11 and five team. And there's probably a, a couple games that, you know, didn't go our way or, you know, or did or didn't that we could have been, you know, a six and 10 team. Like every year you look back and you think that about, you know, your season when you really look back and look how things worked out. You 
2012, you're, you're done in Denver, you're a free agent. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that kind of was the beginning of the end. You, you bounced around to a few teams. You get, you, although you did get some good run in Kansas City, but I remember when we did um, a game this past season, you just you were never right. You were playing through so much no, pain. Yeah. You couldn't even get out of bed. I had a Liz Frank injury my uh, third season. That was what ended my season there in 2009 with, with Eric Mangini. We had won a couple games. We had actually won, I think, uh, right before overtime in Kansas City. And I had the injury on a quarterback scramble to kind of get us in a big game and, and allow Jerome Harrison to have like a record. You know, he had a touchdown at the end of that game but to seal it. But uh, that was it for that season. Should have gotten surgery, didn't. Um, you know, we can go back and forth about the medical advice I had gotten. But uh, looking back, should have had surgery. That always plagued me. Um, you know, had after that, you know, torn uh, – cartilage in my, in my throwing shoulder and uh, torn cartilage in my, in my ribs. Like there's just a number of, I had concussions that year as well. So it, it was a rough year for me just from a health standpoint, something that like never happened to me in college. You know, I played in every single game in my college career and, you know, outside of one concussion my sophomore year, which I, I really didn't miss any time. We had a drive, go ahead lead. They took me out after that and the game was over. So that year was tough because uh, I, I really came in like the week, six or seven, I think, because Matt Castle had a concussion. I got my opportunity to come in at the end of a game versus Baltimore, um, trying to bring us back. You know, couldn't do that. Next week, start in Tampa. Don't have a great game. Um, they decided to let me be the starter that next week. I ended up getting a concuss concussion versus Oakland. And I'd already had one in, in training camp, uh, last preseason game in Green Bay. So at that point, they were pretty cautious about even bringing me back to practice. Um, and then when I did get the opportunity to come back, I mean, we were – we were a one-win football team. It's, it's not a good thing. And, and unfortunately, I was a part of enough teams where if, if you're out of shot for the playoffs, I'm not saying this team played that way because we had really good character guys on that team, especially on defense, that kept us in a lot of games where we probably shouldn't have been because offensively we struggled. But there could be some time, you know, times where guys kind of look to protect themselves. Um, and so that, that was just a tough one to get through, I think kind of knowing what was going to come at the end of that season. Um, and then knowing what we faced, you know, with the Javon Belcher situation, I, I think after that, after that game, that win versus Carolina, they got us to two wins. I don't know that anyone wanted to be there anymore. You know, when we right. had a guy that guys were close with, people were close with a tragedy that happens like that, um, that really like just completely, I think, you know, got everyone off almost football and wondering like some bigger, bigger questions. I, I forgot that that was in the midst of that season, which I believe ended day before up being a game, a, a two or three win season, two and 14 that year. Yeah. Day before a game that happened. day before the game. How, so, how, how did, how did the, how did you guys handle that? Uh, it was emotional. You know, I, I remember getting the call cause I was on the way in, um, to the stadium at that point in time, the stadium and the facility are, are relatively close. They share almost the entire complex there, uh, with the baseball team. We had been diverted. Cops had already set up, kind of uh, shutting down the, the exits. And when we got in the locker room, like some people already kind of knew. And, and I had called Jim Zorn at the time, our quarterback coach, and he had told me enough to know that like something tragic had happened. And basically, you know, we were then informed in the locker room, in the stadium, what had happened. And people were just in disbelief. People were broken down. You know, the, the game was the furthest thought from our minds and the tough thing was was the reality that carolina was already on their way and we were going to play a game at that point no matter what um and that was like tough i think for a lot of guys to internalize like a guy who is one of our best special teams player maybe a captain at that time inside linebacker starting inside linebacker the guy wasn't there 
I mean, he just had his little daughter Zoe, you know, and, and like I'd been at a Halloween event with him, like somewhere close, maybe a month before that with him, just kind of talking about, you know, fatherhood because uh, I'd had kids yet. And just the whole dynamics, of like all the emotions you experience, it, it's crazy to then think like, oh, and now I have to go play a football game, you know? Mm. So the, the, and the, and the weird tie-in was Jack Easterby, who's now high up within the Texans organization, he at the time was our team chaplain. Um, he was a godsend for us, like figuratively and literally, as far as just how he could help kind of handle those who had questions and those who were just not sure how to feel what to think at that point in time, you know, the way he helped us and our team in some very dark circumstances. And he ended up going to New England after that and then helped them deal with Aaron Hernandez and that whole scenario and obviously then found his way to Houston. But he's, uh, he was a big piece of, of helping us all kind of through that time. I can't even imagine having to play in a, in a football game after something that emotional, losing a teammate like that. Um, so you go, after that, you go Seahawks, Jets, Rams, Yeah, 2013 Dolphins. was a tough year. I, was, uh, I signed with Seattle in the offseason. I had no idea what to expect. All I knew was, and the workout and everything else, you know, I'd, I'd worked out with um, Tyler Thigpen and Seneca Wallace, who had played in Seattle previously, mm-hmm. Matt Leinert who was Pete Carroll's former quarterback. And so I remember getting there, not knowing that any of that they were going to be there and thinking to myself, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> like this, this may be one of the first times I have to work out for a team. I'm not going to be able to win a competition. And we ended up all throwing and they ended up signing me. And now I'm, now I'm wondering like this Pete Carroll guy, I absolutely <laughs> hate his guts. So I get to the first team meeting and I'm, I'm sitting there just taking in this atmosphere, which is the most unique I'd ever been around, ever a part of. He's such an interesting – everybody's just kind of doing their own thing. I used to hear about Marshawn. Marshawn would just get up and walk out of meetings when, when Pete was there sometimes. He, yeah, I didn't experience that with him, but just the shooting hoops, the watching other sports, um, the, the different uh, skits and things that he would do, right. you always had to be on your toes. But the one thing he always preached, and I love this, was you were always competing. You were always competing every day, anything you did. A lot of coaches say that, but don't no, really mean it. He, 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 he meant this. He keeps score. Yeah. And he makes sure you know, and he makes sure everyone understands throughout the periods of practice, every day, whatever it was, like the whole thing. And he, and he wants you to talk trash. He wants you to challenge each other. He wants that. He wants to feel that energy. It was coming off of that 2012 season, as disappointing as it was, and just and my feelings towards football, I was in a weird place. You know, and, and he really helped me love football again for it being a game. Like kind of rejuvenated. Made, he did. He, re, he helped rejuvenate me. And look, he cut me. It, it, didn't even, it didn't even work out. But him and John Schneider and the environment they created, and I remember being with that team and looking. And like, I'm running with the twos at times, the threes. It was me and T-Jack, you know, God rest his soul, um, who were there at the time competing for the backup spot. I'm, I'm with threes and I'm going, these guys can play for Cleveland, the team I was just on, or, or Denver, like, like these guys can make, the guys who are on this roster can make any other roster. I mean, seriously, like they were, they had such a stacked, deep roster where you felt like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going against the twos and threes. It was like, no, no, I, I've got to be prepared no matter what my assignment was, whether I'm going against the ones, twos, or threes because of how stacked that roster was. And so, I, and, and I remember saying to people then, I was like, this team's going to have a shot of winning the Super Bowl. I, I've never been on a team that was that close to being as successful. I, I kind of knew from the Denver team going to the playoffs what that was like, but being on that team, you were like, okay, th- this is what it's like. And the way the organization did things, top notch with everything. Um, and then they cut me. <laughs> and, so, and so then that was the first time in my life I was really cut. 
Um, and I wasn't sure to take it. I got a call from John Isaac. He was like, hey, you want to come out and sign with the Jets? It's probably going to only be for short term. But I was like, I don't know how to take this. Let me, let me sleep on it. Next day I wake up and I'm like, I'd rather have a job than not have a job and, mm-hmm. and go see Marty Morningwig. Had a lot of respect for him, what he did and his reputation. So I went to the Jets and, uh, you know, moved across the country there from Seattle to New York. I'm there for half the season. Uh, I think I got cut. I got cut the weekend after my birthday. So I forget what birthday that would have been. What was that, 2013? Uh, so at that point, 29. So they had released me the next day. Um, and I, and I kind of knew it was coming because they had had David Garrard coming back and he had been there originally and he was rehabbing the knee. And so they felt like he was going to be better to mentor uh, Geno Smith moving forward. So I get released. And as soon as I am leaving the bu- building, the St. Louis Rams called. Sam Bradford tears his ACL. Can you make it up here? Uh, it's like a five o'clock flight. I'm like, no chance. I was sitting in the quarterback room, taking a bunch of notes, breaking out film for the next week with Matt Sims. <clears throat> and, uh, I remember kind of saying goodbye to him, saying goodbye to some of the people. And I was like, there's no way with traffic I'll be able to make it. So I flew in the next day, ended up signing with the uh, Rams. And then two weeks into it, herniated two discs in my back. And then I need back surgery. So mm. it was one of the most trying, crazy years of my life. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of taught me a lot about myself and just um, you know, kind, of, kind of about life in general. You know, you can't always control some of the things that happen to you, some of the circumstances. You just got to kind of keep a positive attitude through it all. When you look back, is there one do-over in your career? Is there something you can pinpoint that if I would have done this, this would have been different, or if this would have happened, this would have been different? So I don't like looking back and regretting necessarily. However, if there was one point, I always say what if. It's between 2011 and 2012. I had the opportunity to sign back to Denver. And at that point in time, Adam Gase had told me like, hey, we're gonna get Peyton. We know we're gonna get him. He hasn't made the decision yet. He wants to you know, wait, but we know we're gonna get Peyton. And I think they'd already talked to him about me being the backup and all that kind of thing. And so I actually- Did you know him at all? Did you have a relationship with Peyton the only, before? The only relationship I had with Peyton was I had called him about uh, his agent, Tom Condon. And so I'd spoken with him back when I was in college about that and asked him for some advice. And that was primarily it. That was the only time I'd really spoken with him. Um, and so that was it. And, but, but I obviously was thinking to myself, I would love the opportunity to sit behind Peyton and learn. But I also would love the opportunity to play. play. And sure. I wanted the opportunity to play more than I did the opportunity to sit and learn. However, had I been there, even if it was just for a year, who knows how the perception of me, the, what I would have learned, how I could have applied it. You know, being with um, three teams in six years, Versus, I think I was looking at signing a two-year deal, and I actually left money on the table uh, signing with Kansas City on a one-year deal. But I would have been with, um, potentially, if I would have played out both contracts, uh, two teams for seven years or three teams for six years. Like, it it sounds a bit different. Um, And so that is the one thing I always go, what if? What if I would have been there for that? What if I would have, you know, been a backup for it, played well in the preseason? Maybe I would have, if I was more patient, would have had a better opportunity on on the backside of that. Um, and, and wouldn't have been basically going in halfway through a season that was, you know, we were one in five, one in 16 by the time I got a shot at Kansas City to try to go in there and be the starter and compete and, and see what happens. Uh, driving down here again with our uh, travel producer, Fernando, um, he said, what's the most important thing for an NFL quarterback? And he started reeling off all these, all these traits. And I said, well, take accuracy, in my opinion, take right. accuracy, make it number one. Right. But then what would be number two? Would it, would it be 
uh, processing quickly? Would it be mobility? Um, would, would it be arm strength? Would it be you know supporting cast? Like wh what is the number two well, most important? The supporting, I, mean, I, I would put supporting cast before number one. one. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, okay. If Let's, you're on a great football team, you, you might have to do that yeah. much. You know, you're managing more. It's now just it's not messing it up. It's right. steering the boat, right? Let's throw supporting cast out. Okay. That was bad. <laughs> but like just in terms of physical mental traits, like you're building a perfect quarterback. Accuracy number one, correct? Yeah, I would put accuracy number one. I mean, you gotta be able to hit what you're throwing at. Right. So so that and then I think the next thing which encompasses probably processing is decision making. I think if you're an overall good decision maker, you know, and you have accuracy, you can figure out ways to move the football, move the chains, make enough big plays and all that as a quarterback. And you don't have to have the strongest arm, you know. Um, you you can you can be able to manage it and make it work. So I, I would say after that decision making and, and how you process are kind of one and the same in my mind. And honestly, the third thing, I, I think now more than ever, it sounds so vague, but it's confidence. When you come from college and, and as you build up in the college, like a lot of these guys, everyone's telling you what you do well. The second you turn to becoming a pro, Everyone's criticizing what you can't do well, what you need to improve on, and anything else. And what happens is these guys get in the NFL, and after a few years, especially once you get knocked around a little bit, people stop believing in you. Like once the guy who drafted you as a coach or a guy who drafted you as a general manager, once those guys don't believe in you anymore, it's now about trying to prove yourself to everyone else. And so if you don't have the belief and confidence in your abilities to actually go out there and throw a ball in a tight window or throw a ball in a spot where there's no one there right now, but you're anticipating where your guy's gonna be and where that window's gonna open. To have the confidence to do that in a mere matter of seconds, it's tough to do. And so you've gotta be able to maintain that even when things aren't going well or even when you're not you know, winning football games or you know, feeling you know, like you're, you're playing your best or maybe you're physically not feeling great. You've gotta be able to maintain the confidence in your ability to be able to deliver and do that. That's interesting you say confidence because immediately I think about a guy who's very level-headed, like, like an Eli, who would lead the league in interceptions one year, and then he was a two-time Super Bowl MVP. And he just seemed very – this is a Jim Zorn word. Yeah. Zorn coached the Redskins for a couple of years. I did his coach's show. He loved to just say, stay medium. Right. Just keep everything medium, right? Don't get too high, too low. Like, like a great golfer, you got to forget yeah. that missed putt. I would think as a quarterback – it's incredibly difficult because you guys are all alphas, right? right. And you're so used to have, and so to, to fake the confidence is a tough thing to do. Not that, not that you need to fake it, but like when you lose it, it's hard to get it back. No, and you can see it. I mean, you can see in the body language of quarterbacks, especially when you start to get to know the guy. You know when, when he walks out, if he's not feeling it or he doesn't have it. You know, it's kind of like pitchers. And, and I can relate this from playing baseball. There's times you walk out and you're, you're warming up the mound and you go, I don't have my best stuff today. Like, or maybe I can't hit the spots I want to. Right. It's the same thing as a quarterback sometimes. Sometimes you just, you're off as far as your ability to be as accurate as you can be, or there's something that's physically bothering you. It might be an injury that it's nagging you, and that prevents you to be off. And, and that's what the NFL is about. The NFL is about being as consistently good as possible. Like, whatever you are at your best, trying to be that or as close to that as much as you possibly can. And so you, you kind of have to be medium through that because there's going to be days where, you're not going to have your best stuff. And you've still got to be able to manage yourself and your expectations and, and your ability to deliver through that. Well, I, I hate to use another golf analogy, but it's always said to me, it's not how good the good shots are, it's how good the bad, bad shots, shots are. are. You know, And that's yeah. kind of the same thing for a quarterback, right? You're going to make mistakes, right. but just don't have the mistakes hit them like right between the numbers. Right. And, and that was one thing that, like I always say, there's good and bad, bad picks, right? There's some that you're going to say, okay, 
that's just a bad throw. Uh, and it could have been altered by, you had the, got moved off the spot, the ball, you could have been impacted by a guy hitting you, something like that. That kind of stuff happens sometimes. There's going to be tip balls. You know, there's going to be times when a guy runs the wrong route and, or is at the wrong depth and it ends up being an interception. Those are, those are not bad picks. Those are picks, you don't call them good picks, but they're picks when you go back and watch them on film, they're justifiable. Right. Then there are those picks, and, and, there's, and, there, and for whatever reason, like I always feel like there's certain quarterbacks who make those. Where they throw a ball and you just go, what in the hell were you thinking? Right, right. Or, or w- like, what happened here? And it's either a breakdown in pressure and panic, or it's, you know, sometimes you, you have to make some throws where you're blind. You know, you're anticipating a spot. You think you know where, where it is, and there happens to be a guy standing right there waiting for that drop that you couldn't see. That stuff happens sometimes too, but you're accountable for that. And so there's, there's definitely um, a way I always felt like when I was watching quarterbacks play, you'd watch guys and you'd say, all right, it, Okay, he's a good quarterback, but is he a bad pick thrower or a good pick thrower? Like when you're going back right. and watching it, can you see why he threw that ball and why it ended up being a pick? Or, or is it just, you know, he's the type of guy that he's a gunslinger and he takes chances and there's not really any rhyme or reason. That was something that I always appreciated, like studying various quarterbacks and looking at the way they took calculated risks. Who was who the best quarterback coach you ever had? Man, it's tough to answer that because I, I loved my time with Rip Shear and I loved my time with Jim Zorn. And they're different. Um, those two would have been there. And then I'd say Peter Voss, who was my quarterback coach in, um, in, in, at Notre Dame. The other guy I really loved, too, was Frank Signetti. But I, I didn't really get to, didn't get to play for him with the Rams. Right. Uh, and, then, and, I had, and then I had David Lee for a little bit. So it's tough because David Lee I was only with for half a season, but I worked with every once in a while in the offseason. I love D. Lee. He, he's an absolute goober because he was in the AAF, yeah. I think, working with the Memphis team, which was my first interaction with him. And I said, this, this guy knows quarterbacks. He play. knows quarterbacks. Um, it was one of the best things I ever did in my career was working with him in the offseason. So David Lee would definitely be up there. But he was, he was my quarterback coach for eight weeks. Right. You know? right. So that was tough. And he was really more trying to focus on preparing Geno, who was a rookie and all that. Uh, but I would definitely include him in the conversation. Same thing with Signetti. Love loved talking to Sig and just talking ball on West Coast with him. Uh, but I, I got a full year with Jim Zorn. Jim Zorn was a big reason why I signed with Kansas City. Yeah. I, I think during that process of visiting there, if I was in that facility for four hours, I was with him for two. You know, it was that sort of in-depth conversation. Um, and, and so he was definitely, and then obviously Rip Shear, who I think I texted him maybe two days ago. You know, he was awesome as, as, a, as a quarterback coach and as a man and just, I think, handled the roller coaster that kind of was Cleveland for the two years that we were there together. Zorn is funny. So I'm sure you know the Redskins story about how they hired him as the offensive coordinator before they had hired a head coach. And Jim Fossil was the head coach that they were expected to hire. They were late in negotiations with Jim Fossil. And the public reaction once that got out in the Washington Post and all the other news outlets in D.C. was terrible. They did not want a Giants cast off to come down and coach the Redskins. The Redskins did an about face, broke off negotiations with Fossil. Zorn was already in the building, basically made him the head coach. <laughs> and within like two months, and I think he got off to a pretty decent start. I think they were four and one, five and one. And within like five months, this is when George W. Bush was in office, uh, it was like Zorn and George W. like going for mountain bike rides. You know, it was just, he, he was. He was the Redskins head coach, you know, it was a huge deal in Washington, D.C. And then things kind of unwound pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I always enjoyed him as a human being. I just thought he was a delightful guy. He really is. And he's so thoughtful. Um, he, I learned a lot from him. You know, between him and D. Lee and Rip, like, 
I just had an assortment of quarterback drills where I don't coach quarterbacks to this day. But if I did, I'd be relying on heavily on what those three taught me and what we did during the period of time. He was so interesting how he'd be able to watch you in a game and he'd be able to then come up with a drill that mimicked it. You know, and he'd just look for little things here or there or the way he would thoroughly teach you a concept. And so it doesn't matter if you ran that same play eight times. He would say, look, there's always going to be a right answer to it. You know, even if it's the same play over and over and over again. Um, and so I... I, I thoroughly enjoyed my year with him. And again, it was, we were the worst team I was ever a part of. I was a part of that. And even through all of the tragedy and everything else we faced with Javon Belcher, like there's still those silver linings where like my time with Jim Zorn is something like I'll never forget. Why, why don't you coach quarterbacks, mentor young quarterback? I'm sure you talk to guys, but what, that's like a huge cottage industry now, especially down here in Fort Lauderdale. I imagine there's a, there's a pretty big uh, base for that. Oh man, my answer is not going to be one that probably goes well, but um, I would say the first thing is, is I've got three, three daughters that I want to devote whatever time I have outside of work to them. Uh, so that's the first reason. The second is I have not come across a young man at a point in his life where he really wanted to dedicate and work as hard as I'd be wanting to push them or as hard as I'd want to coach them. Uh, I was a very serious kid when I was young about sports. And that was a product of really my parents and my uncle uh, who played ball at Brown. And like, I remember constantly wanting more, constantly wanting to do more, constantly wanting to play more and, and get out there and work with a coach, even at a young age. I just, you know, if I was introduced to a kid who felt that way, was willing to like, let me break down film with him, push him, coach him, go over stuff and took that demeanor, I would. I just, it's kind of a different environment now with kids and I don't know that they want to be coached as hard I don't know I think they want to be more coddled and, and built up and I just I don't know that I would be the right person I think for right now where a lot of kids are as far as what they want from coaching mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to probably what they need in my opinion well I don't think it's an easy easy thing you just see so many guys doing it Jordan Palmer obviously right. out in California has a great following out there um I know you know Kurt Warner has always said, and he coaches, I believe he's still coaching, but he coached for a while yeah. his son's high school football team in Arizona. And he's always offering up yeah. advice or, hey, come work out with me to a lot of guys who, who were in the draft and are just getting drafted or, or prior to the draft. And he said, it's mind boggling how few of them actually take me up on my offer. Yeah. And here's a, you know, a Hall of Fame quarterback offering his expertise and advice. I, I've said this before because I remember when he publicly stated that and said that. I think it's in part fear. You know, they're a little like, I don't know him. I don't know if I want sure. to work with the guy I haven't. What I'm doing now is working well for me. So why would I want to go to a guy that maybe want to change everything up? Uh, so it's out of fear in that regard. But I think the other thing is, again, like he's old school. Like he might say a lot of things. He'll that coach you. you. Yeah, that you yeah. don't want to hear. Like, like coaching for everyone like nowadays is like being built up and like, oh, let's stay positive. It's like, no, dude. Like you need to hear what you need to do in order to change. There was just an article in the Wall Street Journal, by the way, about this, about how you know, basically people are, are better off being motivated through like criticism as far as performance goes, as opposed to, you know, just picking someone who's going to tell them the positive things or, you know, try to highlight what they're doing well. And there's, so there's studies on all this sort of, sort of thing. And I sat there and I said to myself, like, I remember when Charlie Weiss first got to Notre Dame, one of the biggest reasons for, I think my jump outside of the offense and what he was as a play caller and all the help, you know, I had out around me as teammates is the fact that he pushed me. I mean, he was an absolute jerk at times. And there's probably some times where I wanted to hate him, but it motivated me so much where I couldn't sleep at night because I wanted to make sure whatever he was barking at me about the day before, I was gonna get right the next day. 
And I, I think there's people who are driven in that way that, you know, need that coaching, but there's a lot of times they're, they're too scared or they don't want to have to ask for it or they don't want to experience it. I, I, I think we find that in the real world as oh, yeah. well. I mean, in our business now, you know, TV and media, there are so many bosses who are afraid to criticize. You know, right. how many shows or games? Oh, that was a good game. And I'm thinking in my head, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I suck. <laughs> that second chat, man. And then, you know, or if it's a game, you know, this call in the third quarter, why didn't I say this? So you're always your own worst critic, but I really appreciate those producers who will break it down for you afterwards and said, I wish you would have said that, or you could have said this, right. or you missed this opportunity, because that's what makes us better. 100%. Um, I think you, like, you, you win or you learn, right? Those are the two ways I think you look at it. And, and fortunately for me, I lost a lot, so I've learned a lot you know, in, in my life, my professional career playing football. And so I, I've got a lot of things that I'm fueled by my failure in, in order to do broadcasting, in order to do whatever it is next. So, um, you know, I, I think that's the other thing too, is people get concerned because they don't have success that they don't have a wealth of knowledge. No, you do. You've just figured out how not to do it right. Now you got to figure out how to do it right. Uh, but I, I'm with you on that. Like, and that's one of the things I love most about Brad Zager is him and I, and I, and I think he be, he'd admit this, like we have some real conversations. And, and I tell him, I'm like, do not ever compliment me. Like, do, uh, that's not how I'm motivated. That's not how I'm geared. If I sucked, like, tell me I'm sucked and tell me why. Tell me what I need to do better. Like, you're a busy guy. I, I know you're incredibly busy with everything you have, you have going on. So when we talk, I know it's, it's scarce that you have this much time to talk about something. So just give me what I need to get better. And that's, that's all I ever ask him, Judy Boyd, the, Jacob Bowman. These are your bosses at These are all Fox, my bosses right. at Fox. Same thing. You know, I talked to Kieran Poorly at CBS. You know, what do I need to do better? Like, don't sugarcoat me. Don't give me any of that stuff. Like, I want to feel, it's funny, at the end of my career, when you're practicing every day, like, this may be my last, I might get cut. I may, if that's a bad throw, like, am I getting cut? You know, I've seen guys who walked into a team, they warmed up, they got cut. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't look like what, was, what they were, were described as. I love feeling that pressure. And so um, maybe I, I try to put it on myself, but I miss it. Like, I miss that feeling of like, ah, oh, man, I, I got to get better. Otherwise, like, I'm going to lose my job. Well, I, that's what, to me, the rush of being in a live television environment, whether it's in studio or at a game, there's a rush there. And yeah. I, I, do you still feel that? I mean, different than being on the field and playing, but to me, there's still a rush there. Well, that's why the open's the worst part of any broadcast. <laughs> and, 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 any, and any broadcast would tell you that because you make so much about like a two-minute part that almost no one's going to listen to or no one's going to see but it's the first words out of your mouth. Right. And it's your, it's your and first- And you're on camera. You're on camera and you're, you're being asked to basically sell this game as why they should watch. And there's times when you're do, calling a game that may be more difficult than that. You and I were fortunate where we called a game early in the season. There was a lot to sell. Kyler Murray, you know, the, the Detroit Lions, you know, what they were going to be. They were really good early on uh, last season until Stafford really got hurt. But, you know, th those moments are the ones where you feel a little bit of it. Like, oh, yeah. You're getting the countdown in your ear. That, that light's about to go red and you're saying to yourself, I've rehearsed it, but I want to do it better than how I rehearsed it. 100%. And then you start playing mind games. So that's where it's, it's always funny. Like, and then and you just can't let however the open goes dictate your flow for the rest of the game. Right. Cause sometimes you can be a funk through like the first quarter. And if the game gets off to a weird start, now you're trying to play catch up with yourself where the, you know, everyone out there viewing has no idea. They've right? moved on. They've yeah. moved on or, or they didn't even see it in the first place. Well, what's the, to you, to me, I get more juice from a live game than I do from a studio show. Um, just do. I've done studio for 20 years, transitioning to games 
Uh, I enjoy them both tremendously. Right. I just, the juices are flowing more. Maybe it's because the crowd's there. Right. For you, what's the biggest difference from doing studio, you know, big noon kickoff, uh, a great first year. You guys will be in there for a second year with Urban and Matt Leinert and Rob Stone and Reggie Bush or doing a game. Doing a game, obviously, there, there's more of that rush. And, and it's in part because of the preparation. It's partially about the process. You know, you are digging a mile down, maybe an inch wide, right? Because you're so focused on the two teams you've got and their stories and the players and everything else. And, and, and it's you. It's you and your partner. It's you and me, buddy. Like we were out there in Arizona yeah. for the extent of the game. So that to me is the better rush. I actually find it, though, to be more difficult in managing a studio because you have such a smaller window to say something of significance. And you also don't know, I mean, hopefully things don't go as scripted. Hopefully people have some real or natural reactions where you're sitting there listening to people talk and, and you're reacting naturally like you would in a normal conversation. And so I always feel like it's harder to then say something when you have 15 or 10 seconds hmm. that people at home are gonna go, huh, I never thought of that, or I didn't see it that way, or I just learned something. I think that's way harder than having a drive where I can talk about a concept that you're seeing again and again or pick back up in later in a game and then telestrate and show you with something. Like that to me is way easier than what you're tasked with in a studio, in, in my opinion. Well, you get so many more bites at the apple in right. a game and you, you're doing an hour-long show, the show I did for many years at NFL Network, Total Access, hour-long show. And there are so many times that there's something that I want to say to just kind of button things up, you know, or, yeah. or, or make my own point on top of an analyst point. And I have the producer screaming in my ear. And I know it's a good point, but I also know if I say it, I'm totally going to screw him because we're up against a break, break. or he's going to have to yep. drop something else. Or that time is going to come out of somebody else's time right. later in the show that, you know, a poor reporter has been sitting around all day. Or your D blocks condensed. Yeah. And that could be like for us. It's hard because, like, this is what I've had to learn about Big Noon Kickoff is our biggest audience is, is the D block. It's not the A block. And usually when you're As going, you get closer to kickoff. As you get closer to kickoff. Right. And usually you're accustomed to your, your biggest audience in a show or your best material being in the A block. And, and then you kind of build out things after that. Maybe I'm wrong in that assumption, but that's been in my experience. No, absolutely. And, and, and so it, it's interesting how if you take too long with those A's and B's, especially on a live show, especially on, on site where you can have technical malfunctions and all these other things go wrong, you then have to figure out how to make up for it in the last segment that could be really up against a kickoff of why everyone's tuning in in the first place to watch. And, and that, that to me is where the difficulty comes for you, me, you know, anyone Absolutely. who's a part of the studio. You know, it's funny. I, I had uh, Nate Burleson on a couple of weeks ago and I asked him what the best broadcasting advice he received from or what he received. And he said it was from Strahan. He said he had just, Nate had just started NFL Network and um, as you know, a lot of those guys stay at the yeah. Intercontinental there, which is very close to the Fox lot. And he said, Strahan was on the elevator going to a workout. And Nate just like, hey, what's up, man? And yeah, he's like, you got any advice for me? And Nate was just starting out. And Strahan said, never say no. Just do everything they ask you to do. Don't turn down a job. And Strahan clearly has, has never seen a job he doesn't like, <laughs> which is one of the reasons he's just crushing yeah, it. Yeah, right uber successful. Yeah, it doesn't, right? doesn't turn down anything. So Nate really listened to that. And you know, now he's doing Good Morning Football. Now he's doing uh, the CBS Sunday Morning Show. He's doing extra. And I, I thought about you because after we did that game uh, in Arizona, I'm driving my kids to school the next morning. And my flight from Arizona to LA is like 45 minutes. You yeah. have to get back here, taking yeah. a red eye. And you were on 
you were, you were on the radio the next morning on NFL radio. And I'm like, this guy is a monster. <laughs> Why do you, you have two, three, four different jobs sometimes. Why, you don't need to do that. Why do you choose to do that? Um, I think one, I choose to do that because it, it, like you had said earlier, like we're our own toughest critic. And so I always look for ways that I can improve myself, whether that's through radio, which eventually leads to, you know, studio or what I'm doing digitally or what I'm doing on TV. It always, everything can help sharpen you, right? Uh, with everything you're doing. Um, I, I, I kind of look at it how Michael Strahan does. Like if someone prevents, presents me an opportunity, I'm going to take it. I'm going to run with it for as long as I can and try to be as successful as I can with it. Uh, and then I think the other thing is loyalty. Like, for example, I work with Bruce Murray. We've worked together now for four or five years. Like now it's like, I look forward to those conversations right. with Bruce. I look forward to my conversations with Jonas Knox every Sunday night for our Fox sports radio show um, or working with Pete Prisco or Chris Hassel at CBS or seeing urban and, and Matt and Reggie and Rob, like you look forward to it after a while. Like they're like your family, they're your team. And so then it becomes this thing where you're like, all right, now I don't like, and, and, and the TV industry, everything changes so much. And so then it becomes like, well, I don't want to have to change. You know, like I love working with all these people. Right. Um, and so I think that's part of it. Like I'm wired that way anyways. I like staying busy. I think they all kind of work in sync with one another too, preparing me for each thing, right? If I'm talking NFL all week I'm, and I'm breaking down the film for radio, I've already got some of that film broken down for studio in, at CBS or doing a game with you. So it all, it all makes sense in my mind. But yeah, I'm... I don't know. I don't like sleeping much. I'm going to get back to my <laughs> MBA right now, which was like, Are you really? Yeah. Where are you I, getting that? Uh, Babson. So nice. I, I've got more of an entrepreneurial spirit as one of the best programs. Is that up in Boston? Uh, it's up in Wellesley, Mass. Yeah, okay. that's right. And so granted, I have to do this part-time, so I'm doing some of it online. I'll have to go there at some point once campus opens back up uh, and I have the time to do so. But um, yeah, it, it's like I took on that challenge kind of thinking to myself, I'm at the point where I'll be 36 this year. I want to I wanna continue my financial education to do some of the things I do outside of broadcasting, outside of um, you know, sports. And it was just kind of, the, I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm, as my girls get older, I'm not going to have time to devote to this like I do now. And so, yeah, I, I even threw that on, on my plate on top of what I already have. By the way, point. very, very smart. I remember when I, when I lived in the DC area, I said to my neighbor, I said, man, I can't wait until my kids are like, you know, nine, 10, they can kind of fend for themselves a little bit. I have so much more time to, to do other things. He just started laughing, just cackling. He goes, dude, you're going to be going to all their games. Like right. you're going to have far less time than you do now when they're toddlers. Right. Right. So that's good. You got to get that stuff out of the way. Now, right. I mean, you're, you're general contracting your new house. You're getting your <laughs> MBA. You have four different jobs. The gen and by the way, the general contract in my house, and, and this is all because I grew up with a dad who was a builder. And so I know a little bit and I've, I have had to hire a little bit of help and I, and I have great subs, but we bought this house to remodel and I, I had met with a bunch of different GCs and I, and I'm from talking with them, I was like, all right, the prices are high. And on top of that, like if that guy's not going to be there the whole time, he's not going to care about the project as much as I am. So I was right. like, you know what? I'll just go ahead and act as the GC on this. So I'll pull an owner builder permit. That's what I've done. And so far so well, everything's going good. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been another thing where like, after we know this today, I'll be running back over. You know, I'll, I'll have to go back over and check on some of the progress. It's never ending. Travel. It's always yeah. more expensive and it always runs, runs longer than, uh, than, than you expect. Yeah. But when you're your own GC, it's not going to be as long. No, and, and, and it's not going to be as expensive, right? Because yeah. obviously the, the longer it is, the more yeah. their cost builds up. And, and even though I, I have some of that, I actually need to call it to get my dumpster empty now that I think about it. So <laughs> there you go. First on the podcast, we hear about dumpsters emptying. Um, okay, I'm going to do a couple of quick hitters here, and sure. then, then we'll let you out of here. It's almost uh, almost 90 minutes. So I really appreciate the time. Um, 
You're starting a team right now. I'm going to take Patrick Mahomes off the table. Ooh, okay. What quarterback are you starting your franchise with? Oh, man. If we had to pick one of the young guys, I mean, it's hard not to pick Lamar Jackson. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think he's continued to develop as a passer. He's dynamic as a rusher. He's always going to have that. But I only think he's going to going to improve as a passer. So it would probably be Lamar. Okay. Um, you had an Instagram post uh, a while ago where you talked about Joe Burrow. His, the, like a to-do list. And you said, needs to work on nothing. Yeah. Do you, is, do you think the transition for him is going to be relatively easy coming off that historic season he had at LSU? The transition will be easy from the standpoint that, he, you know, I, I know Zach. Zach's a good coach. He's going to be able to teach him his system. Joe's smart. He's going to be able to, to execute that system. The biggest question mark is whether or not he's going to have the tools that he had at LSU in comparison with who he's playing. Right, right? right. He had the best offensive line at LSU. He had a first-round draft pick, a wide receiver. He'll have a, another one next year in Jamar Chase, maybe Terrace Marshall. I mean, he had some really, really Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I mean, some really good you know, targets to throw to. He's got that in Cincy if A.J. Green's there, if John Ross stays healthy, Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon. I mean, he's got some of that. But, you know, the NFL – more than any, any other sport, in my opinion, it comes down to the situation and circumstance you enter into. So whether or not Joe Burrow can, can help Cincinnati catapult and, and surpass what Andy Dalton did, that's as much up to Joe as it is up to the organization and providing him what he needs. Yeah, giving him the pieces. Uh, last thing that you Googled. You might have to pull out your phone. No, I already know. You know? I, yeah, I, I literally know. Uh, we have a, a sub-zero refrigerator that needed a new water filter. And so I had to Google because like, I was like, I don't think you can buy direct off their website. And you can't. You have to go through like their factory website. So I literally did that probably an hour before I came here. Thermidor? Uh, no, no, no. Sub-zero wolf. Oh, so, sub-zero wolf. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've, I've been in that same situation before. Most irrational fear? Um, most I think it must be like claustrophobia with elevators. Um, and it happened to me recently because I got stuck in one at a hotel and it wasn't one of those ones where they even had the phone. They had like a button you could hit to then talk to someone. And so I talked to someone and then they, they were like not even at the hotel, which then I started to panic a little bit because now I'm thinking it's hot in this thing. I kind of have to take a piss. Like, how long is it going to be? <laughs> now they're like, well, I'm at some national center. I have to route you to the property and hope that someone in there in maintenance oh, can help. And so, worst. so I'm like starting to kind of wig out a little bit after like 10 minutes. And they're like, okay, uh, call back in like another 10 if you don't hear from anyone. And I don't have cell phone reception either, right? So now like I can't even like call someone or text or like at least pass the time. I, I was like debating like seeing how many push-ups I could do. And then fortunately <laughs> the elevator starts moving and I'm like, oh, okay, I, I guess we're good now. It goes all the way up to the top of the building and someone like is going to come to get on. I get off and I'm thinking to myself, am I going to either stay and try to ride it down with them down to the lobby or am I just going to take the stairs? And I took the stairs, I think from like 22 stories up all the way down just so I wouldn't run the risk of getting stuck in that elevator again. hundred percent. I would have done the exact same thing. Um, listen, you have probably been around celebrities since high school, well, maybe college, college in terms of being seeing famous people, having interactions with them. My cousin was one of the children on uh, Home Improvement, Zachary Ty Bryan. Oh, wow. So at a young age, I was around Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Zachary okay. Ty Bryan. Uh, I, I forget Mark was the character. I forget the, um, the, the third brother's uh, name. But yeah, I, I was around those guys at a young age. And so it was, it was fun to see like the stardom and what that looked like back then, by right. the way. Um, but yeah, it, it was, and then, 
you know, I'd spent a night with Vince Vaughn uh, a lot when he came to Notre Dame one time. That was interesting. I wasn't of age to take him to a bar. I didn't, I didn't have a fake ID. Did, you didn't, he, he probably didn't need you to get him into the bar because you no, just No, it wasn't along. that, but I didn't have my ID. Oh, and, and, oh I got gotcha. you. And in the state of Indiana, they, you know, people are really strict about it. Well, that. and when they know and, who you are. They knew who I was, yeah, so I, I yeah. didn't want to run that risk either. And, and he wanted to hang out. It was him and Justin Long, um, who's an actor, a comedian, a uh, whole crew that he had. I think it was called the Wild West Comedy Tour. But they all like, came out with us. And so I took him to a couple house parties, which was the worst idea ever. Oh, my God. Because people immediately saw him. I mean, he's tall. Right. You know, everyone recognizes Vince Vaughn. And it was like everyone just – it was like a vacuum. They just immediately were all around him. And it, I think we were probably inside – I think it was like the swim house or somewhere I was having a party. And he was like, I need a cigarette. I was like, all right, let's get out of here. <laughs> we ended up actually going to IHOP that night at like 2 a.m. to like 4. And we all like sat had a bunch of food and like talked for a while and all that stuff. That, and I remember walking out with uh, Darren Bragg, who was one of um, the backup quarterbacks there, and, and I think he had converted to a wide receiver. But we had a, I remember him like looking at me and going, did that just happen? I was like, yeah. I mean, it, was, it was pretty cool. That was probably one of the most like, unique experiences that I've ever had. That's amazing. I, I think MJD had a similar experience with Vince Bond at the Super Bowl one year where they just you know, bellied up to a bar, and you know, an hour later he was you know, still – and Vince is so great because he'll, he'll – repeat the movie lines he'll yeah. play along yeah. like he's still into where so many guys are like dude i don't want to talk about yeah. that like he's great he was awesome uh i mean i could i could go on man. What, what what about one that that um even now or in the last five years where you you, you get uh, butterflies is probably the wrong term but you're like a little starstruck um that's a tough one that's a tough one I don't know. I'd, I'd have to think back on that one. I need some time yeah, on that one. Okay. Right. The, the one athlete that I met that I think back on and think, wow, uh, is, is, and I remember meeting like Lance Armstrong during his prime mm-hmm. and talking with him and you know, his mindset. It was actually Federer. I met Federer at a Super Bowl event. I went back when the Super Bowl was out in Arizona. So it must have been like 08, 09, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And I was just completely taken back and just continuing to follow him, how dominant he's been just the type of player he is. Um, he was one that I still think back on. I'm like, that is a bad dude. Yeah. Like of, of all the people I've, I've come across, like that is one that definitely stands out. Well, when you talk about goats, like he, he's, yeah. a goat, you know, no, he's definitely one. I mean, and you, cause you see so many athletes, you're a professional athlete, you know, for, for me, a lot people ask that question all the time. Oh, is it Jordan? Was it whoever? Most recently it was Jim Brown yeah. having Jim Brown in the studio. And yeah. it, cause it's just, the presence. I remember when I got to Cleveland and I saw him and, and, and now I obviously don't remember him as much as a player. Sure. I remember him being like in movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, as the actor. Me too. Same and thing. And so I wasn't sure like how approachable he'd be and all this stuff. Man, he was the nicest guy. He wanted to do nothing but mentor you and help you. He was a huge piece for me and, and kind of handling some of the adversity there uh, within Cleveland and just Everything. Uh, I would think back to some of the conversations we had, but he is the man. Like he is, he is one that, as far as just former athletes that I met, obviously stands out from that perspective. But just even how how humble he is, and how he just wants to help people and talk to people. He was awesome. Yeah, it's just I, when he when he's in a room, that presence is yeah. just the voice, all the look, all of it. And he's yeah, he's awesome. All right, Brady. I mean, we did go almost ninety minutes on the button, bro. <laughs> I, I really appreciate the time. I know you got to check on a dumpster and make sure yeah, the house I've, is I've, got, I've got to call my uh, my dumpster guy so that and, that and the portal and I, I ordered the workers some pizzas so hopefully those guys dropped off while, I was, while i've been here all so. right well you got to run thanks brother no thanks for having me 